All right, this is another episode of Making Movies is Hard, where we talk about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain, and with me is Ulrich Purcell. Good morning, everybody. What's up? How are things? Good, man. Uh, I guess a little eh, confusingly challenging right now, I guess, but uh, but good. I don't know. I just... Uh, I'm almost done with Brother, and I'm really excited. It's like pretty much we're on the final cut. Uh, but at the same time, I'm casting for this. Uh, oh, yeah, the web series. Yeah, and I, I guess it's good we're talking about actors today because, well, not this episode, but the next episode. But, you know, I have a lot to say about it, I guess, but it's not necessarily going to be the most comfortable thing to talk about. Um are you worried at all about talking about it? Uh, mm, I should be, but I'm. I'm not. I think I'm just gonna, just gonna be honest and and be straightforward, you know, about it all. Yeah. Uh, it's just a very hard thing, and and I, I think it's easy to not see to see it from one side, you know, and not necessarily see it from both points of view. But I'm trying to look at it from the other side, you know. I can't wait to hear about this, but we should save it for yeah. the acting episode. Yeah, the fa- I mean, because today's failure, right? That's our topic for today. Yeah, dealing with rejection and failure. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, like, where where I'm going to head with that. Uh, I just finished working with this director in New York. I was going to try to kind of figure out what I had learned from that shoot. I thought it might be interesting, but it, I think it kind of had mm. a little to do with how he worked with actors. We actually didn't. We worked with real people. Oh, cool. Not just, uh, you know, products this time, huh? That's cool. Oh, no, yeah. It's like a little documentary. Yeah, that makes sense why they would send you to New York or something like that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's also a New York client. Ah, I see. Yeah, so it has to shoot in New York because it's supposed to be representative of like the New York lifestyle. What was your background for one of the interviews that was so New York? <laughs> um, New York. Well, we ended up shooting a lot in like Queens. So it wasn't like, you know, like Manhattan look or Brooklyn. So, mm. you know, it was a lot of sit down interview stuff. And then we shot some people like outside kind of portrait style. Um, but no, I mean, it was more just like making sure that all our characters were in New York and it was a New York story. Where, where, was everybody interviewed like hey yo forget about it hey. no actually none of that stuff <laughs> yeah it wasn't like stereotypical at all I was kind of no. waiting for it <laughs> like we even uh, interviewed an exterminator and he wasn't like that at all oh that's funny yeah yeah, I uh, last time I was in New York working I called to rent some like tables and chairs for a shoot and uh, the guy I was talking to on the phone was just he was like that He's like, hey, you want some chairs? What's what's the chair? Okay, whatever. What's the big deal? Uh, you pick them up whenever. Hey, hold on a second. Hey, Larry, Larry, what was that order again? Okay, oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. What's what's up? What you some chairs? <laughs> Classic. And that's like the worst New York accent ever. But uh, that's yeah. exactly what it was it's, like. But it's the one that everyone thinks of. Right. Right. Yeah. He was. He was really nice though. Really nice guy. But uh, it was funny. I, I love it though. I love that. I love that's what I love about going to the East Coast is you you meet those people and you're like, ah, oh, this is wonderful. Yeah, the I guy that it. was making my panini last week. Every time he said mozzarella, it cracked me up because he like had like a strong Italian accent. So he'd be like the mozzarella. <laughs> you want the panini with the mozzarella? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so man, that's so great. All um, right. So you want to? Should we jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump into it. So um, this week we're going to talk about rejection and failure and how we deal with it. I was trying to f- figure out a story that kind of went into it, but I don't. I don't really have one that's going on currently in my life. I mean, I've been sharing my reel around to production companies and trying to get a like full time job as a director, but I'm not really feeling that rejection too much right now. I'm not getting any positive response but at the same time i'm not like feeling it you know mm, yeah that's it's kind of nice when like because people don't usually email you and be like your reel was so bad we'd never hire you no they you just know? ignore you yeah which is you know it can hurt too like being ignored definitely can hurt like i've 
I've definitely sent a bunch of emails or made phone calls and never heard back, and that can hurt. But uh, yeah, so I've I've been sending out my reel. I think I've sent it out probably to fifteen or twenty different people at this point, and only have gotten a response from like a third of those. And that's still good. Yeah. So th- the ones that have ignored me, it does kind of sting a little bit. And then the people who did get back to me, it probably stings a little more to actually hear somebody say, um, you know it's usually like some sort of suggestion. Oh, you know what you really need to do is insert their advice. And then, and then we should talk again. And it's right now it's kind of, you need to get more commercial work on your reel before we're interested in you. Mm. And so it's a little discouraging because you, you were, I've worked so hard to put stuff together over the past five years, kind of in, in anticipation of this move and to hear the same thing that I heard five years ago. Yeah. But I mean, I think one of your things, cause you're most of your, if not all your stuff is all narrative, right? On your reel. It's all like narrative stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think if you were sending this out to people who wanted, wanted narrative work, you know, I think this would be maybe a different conversation that you'd be having. It's weird because in my head, because I work in commercials, I kind of see as commercials as a way to get paid to direct. Mm. Whereas like the narrative side almost seems like it's, it's always a little bit of a hobby until you can get enough momentum behind your career that you are getting paid for it. But for a while still, it's still going to be a hobby. Like I could completely imagine shooting a feature and not getting paid at all. Oh, easily. easily. I mean, yeah. So it'd be nice to have something on the side that, that pays the bills so yeah, commercials could pay the bills while I could still keep pursuing features until I got to the point where they would pay. Yeah, I mean, if you can make enough money on a feature just to like you know not die while you're making it, I think that's uh, <laughs> kind of like the goal, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the reality, I mean, you, we've talked about this, but like, yeah, it seems like a lot of people pay for their first movie, you know? Yeah, And it seems like it works out a lot of the time, you know? It's just like, oh, you put that investment down and... Yeah, then you uh, you get your next step. I mean, that isn't always true, you know. And uh, I heard a story today, or not today, but last week about this woman uh, from Columbia that from somebody I met who uh, made a movie, and uh, I asked him how she got her funding, and he was like, "Oh yeah, she like met some some rich guy, like just gave two million dollars, you know. He just farted it out, and handed it to them." And they made a movie. I'm like, ah, oh, man, there's got to be more to this story. But uh, <laughs> right. but apparently he was saying that like $2 million budget like wasn't even enough to get the coverage she needed to like make the movie work well. Interesting. Uh, and I was like, $2 million's not enough. Why are you people happy? <laughs> Come on, man. I think it, all, it probably million. never feels like it's enough, right? Isn't that right, kind of like the... Right. Not the joke, but that's always like the restraint of filmmaking. I'm sure even at like Michael Bay's level Transformers, there's probably some things he still wants to do and can't do. Yeah, it's true. There's that great story uh, from Total Recall where like uh, they were out of money and Arnold had to like go and like go back to the studio and like smooth talk them to like get them to put more money into like get special effects done at the in the and after they shot, you know. Uh, so yeah, it happens at any, any level, but it's just, I don't know, I, I guess just coming from the idea where you're thinking you're going to make your movie for like anywhere from a hundred <laughs> to $200,000. It's like when someone says two millions, not enough, you're like, ugh, ugh. But it also depends on the story and, and how, and what kind of resources you have lined up. You remember that movie a few years ago called, um, Another Earth? Yeah. They made it for like a hundred thousand dollars and it was really well received. Yeah, is that the one where it's like the planet is coming down against the other planet and then people jump from the two planets? Right. There's also, I think this happens a lot with like these small independent features because they don't have a lot of money, so they can't do all the the storytelling that would maybe what I would think make a better movie. Um, That movie Monsters, where it's that couple that's traveling up through Mexico back to the North America and Mexico's like a, a... a DMZ that with monsters in mm-hmm. it and you don't see yeah. the monsters very much the entire movie. And it was like kind of made me want to see the monsters more like, or I wanted like more actions. Yeah. I like that movie. I, th- I thought they spent a lot of time not really doing a lot. And it was sort of like an art film in a lot of ways. Uh, 
but it was cool and and man it got him godzilla so you know good on him yeah you know? but i think and i'm i want to be so interesting to talk to some of these filmmakers and just say like did you feel like you had to compromise on the story that you wanted to tell because of your budget because i'm sure that there's more that they wanted to do but it just goes to show like you can be ambitious on like a scaled back level and it can still yield things like godzilla that's a that's a pretty huge success you know it's like wow it's amazing um my last day in New York, I, I just finished shooting um, like a kind of a small, low-budget documentary with a, a local director named TJ Misney. I wanted to just kind of see if I could figure out like what are the things that I learned from watching him over the past week? Because I think it's, inter- it's interesting for me, at least, to walk in on a shoot and see a director work and I always pull something from it and I never really know how I'm going to use that and I definitely know watching TJ work there's stuff that I'm going to end up being influenced by on my next project but I'm not completely sure how it's going to play in yet um so let me try let me try let me see if I can figure out like what did I see I mean one thing just in terms of looking up to him as a director, he was his own DP. So he was like Mm. completely in charge of all the performances. And he just seemed like he had so much control over it. It made me a little jealous that he could have that much control over so many aspects of it. Cause I feel like I rely Mm. a lot on smarter people around me that know like how to make things look better than I can. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I always feel like, you know, like I, I've done that before because I do have camera experience and everything, but uh, I prefer not to just because, like, I think it, it lets your brain be free to focus more on performance, you know. But yeah, like some people, that's the only way they can work, and the only way they want to work is when they're in complete control of, you know, the directing side and the and the the camera side. I got the feeling know? from watching him is that yeah, he's just been doing it for so long that that's how he's comfortable. I'm sure in the early days when he started that it was really hard for him to do both. But now he's just gotten into mm-hmm. a rhythm and he knows how to do it. Was he his own operator too or uh-huh. did he have operators for he each had, camera? I mean, he had a focus puller, but yeah, he operated his own camera also. Wow. I mean, it was cool. a super tiny shoot, really low budget. Nice. Uh, it's pretty much it pretty much was like on the level of like any independent short film that you or I have produced. Mm, okay, cool. He added lens flares, which I've never done before, which was interesting. <laughs> like he would set the shot up and then he would decide that he wanted a lens flare. And so he would pull a light in and bounce it off the lens just for the look of the flare. And I've That's never funny. seen anybody do that before. Yeah, I uh, I was just on a shoot a couple weeks ago and uh yeah it was the kind of the same thing it, it was more it was more like we were using our hair light uh you know and then the dp was just like hey move it a little bit like this we're, we're getting a little flare like i just want a little bit more out of the flare i'm like a little bit more out of the flare okay i mean because I, I had just worked on a movie where we had lens flare in one scene and they reshot the scene to get rid of the lens flare and I was like, whoa, like, but isn't lens flare okay these days? Like, people don't really care. He's like, no, 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 no lens flare in my movie. They like, snuck that kind of movie. I'm like, okay. It's interesting, the lens flare thing, because I, I feel like when I was in film school, that was considered a mistake. Right. Like, you would flag off the lens flares. And if you had a lens flare, like, you, I would get, like, marked down points for my teacher. Right, absolutely. But now it feels like, especially with, like, J.J. Abrams and, like, how he shoots his stuff, he adds lens flares, too. It's, like, yeah, kind of like a crazy lens flare culture where, like, people, I think, for some reason, lens flares became something really cool. I My, my whole th- thing on lens flare is, like, if it just hap- if it happens, then great, you know, naturally. If it just, like, you know, if you're shooting B-roll or whatever and it just occurs, like, I think it's cool and, like, I like to use it when I can, but I'm not, like... You know, not like trying to add lens flare in necessarily, <laughs> but that's interesting. So what else did you, because when I watch directors, the thing that I usually take away is like how they deal with talent and actors, because everyone has a different approach, you know, and uh, some of the bigger directors I've worked with, like, especially in the corporate world, like uh, they seem to just to be like the friendliest, nicest people and like, 
just super caring and gentle a lot of the time, you know, but mm-hmm. was, was he like that or how did he approach the talent? Um, well, we weren't working with actors. We were working with real people and it was a documentary style shoot. So still the same. Yeah. He, he was, cause he was asking questions. He was the interviewer as well as being like DP. And I think his strength in asking the questions was, reading the talent and kind of deciding when's the right time to ask the next question. Like he was very deliberate Mm. in how he kind of like he would, he would throw a few like softball questions at them to make them feel comfortable, then ask them something really hard. And then when they felt like they were struggling a little bit, he'd go back to the softball questions and then go to something hard again. Um, So he was really smart in that respect. I think he really just came at it as like a real professional. I think he wanted to be more like news reporter style and he wanted people to Mm. feel like they were part of something that was, um, kind of bigger than themselves and like really important. So he really played that professional card. Like he even dressed that way. Mm. Like it was, he was like one step away from being in a tie. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole nother talk topic talking about you know directors dress mm-hmm. dress wear or what people wear. But uh, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think it's like really the talent of the director in those situations, like especially like documentary interview shoot type things, is like. Yeah, that question asking and the and the rapport with the talent is like all the is like super key. It was so much of making them feel comfortable and making them feel like they were in a safe place so they could reveal things that they might have not revealed if they were kind of caught off guard. Yeah. And I think that was kind of what it was. Like he was really good at like putting himself in their shoes and saying, Oh, I understand, like you might feel this and this and this way, but here's what I'm trying to get at. Maybe you can help us kind of see it from your perspective if you, you know, say it in a in a way that the audience can, you know, get inside your head. Or, you know, he was really good at phrasing what he was trying to get out of the mm-hmm. actor. So that way the actor was like kind of part of it instead of just being like somebody answering a bunch of questions. They were part of building the story of the project, which is really good. It's really interesting to hear that he was like DPing and asking questions. Like uh, how much eye contact do you think he made with the the subject when he was, when they were shooting or was he like looking at the screen and then none? He, He was he had he gave them an eye line that wasn't even close to him. Wow. So they were looking off camera to like the right and he was on the left of the camera. So they were just kind of hearing a disembodied voice and talking to a marker. That's interesting cuz a lot of the guys that I've seen especially like in these bigger documentary sort of situations like either long form one hour interviews or just you know where they really wanted to feel like a documentary like it's all about like the relationship with the director and like I see them all like make a lot of eye contact, you know, and it's like they just draw them into their themselves. And so like, you know, the the subject is like talking to them and like the camera disappears because they're just having a conversation with the human, you know, that's how I always felt about it, too. And so I was kind of surprised to see that that's how he was doing it, because, yeah, even Errol Morris goes as far as to put a screen in front of the camera lens with his face projected on it. (laughs) So the actors looking straight into the lens, but they feel like they're talking to a person. Right. So this was like a little opposite of how I've seen it done. And we'll see what the results come out as. But I think in some ways it kind of helped that person concentrate because they weren't intimidated by looking in a human's eyes mm. that they could like kind of in some ways looking into a point in space, disembody themselves from what was actually happening and maybe maintain focus a little better. I think there's one more thing that I want to talk about on the shoot was he would not stop on a shot until he was like a hundred percent happy with it Mm. which is not something that i do i'm so used to having to shoot so much in one day you know you're trying to get like three or four pages in a day Mm -hmm. that you really only have time to do like one or two takes and move on and you're it's almost like in some ways you say oh it's good enough or Mm -hmm. that gets the point across Mm -hmm. but he was so exact in like what he wanted and this is probably a little like how David Fincher is too, where it's like he wanted all the elements to like align and be very perfect before he would be ready to move on. So 
at the end of the day, he still made his schedule, even though people are pressuring him to move on. And and at the same time, he got everything he wanted. Yeah. It's interesting. And somebody, one other yeah. director told me that too. He's like, never move on until you're happy. That's a hard thing to do, though. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard for us because, yeah, we're, we're, we're in situations usually where there is no possibility of reshoots, you know, at all. Um, and if you don't get your day, you, you have to cut it out of the movie. But yeah, I mean, you know, you got to know when, when you can move on and when you can go forward. And I think it's really interesting in the editing process to see, like, you know, when you use the fifth or sixth take and then when you end up using the first take. All right. So that's it. I mean, that, there's a few lessons in there. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to use them, but I thought it was interesting. It was fun just kind of watching somebody else work because I think it does help when you're on a shoot to kind of look around and and notice how things are happening different from other shoots. And then just kind of like put it in a journal in your head of like, oh, here's like an interesting way to do it. And can I use that on a future project? Yeah. I mean, watching on set is the, is almost besides doing whatever job you're paid to do, which is obviously important, but like watching whoever you want to be, like if you want to be a DP, then watching the DP, or if you want to be a director, watching the director or whatever it is, like that is so valuable. Like, cause you get time to just see how they do their job, you know? And if you want to do that job, there's no value, more valuable thing than to, to witness it happen. But anyways, let's get into the meat, man. Let's talk about. Dealing with rejection and failure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, let's go through some of the ways, like, or some of the things that, what is it? <laughs> well, do you want to just talk <laughs> some about- Some of the examples. Like, let's go through some of the examples of like rejection. Not making it into a film festival is a huge one that I'm sure everyone's going to experience at some point. Yeah. And then just showing your work and either not getting a response from people or hearing negative stuff. Right from people i think those for me are kind of like the the three things that stand out as the main rejections that i feel as an independent filmmaker yeah i also feel like um when you're working on something and you have a vision in your head of what you want to do and then you go out to shoot it or whatever and it doesn't you can't get it to to look or it doesn't look the way that you saw it or it's just not coming together the way that you wanted it to I think that's a big failure for me. Yeah, is, that's that's what I wrote down too. Is like not achieving a goal I set out for myself. Yeah, and I've I've experienced that so much. Like, there's been times when I've shot a movie where it turned out exactly like I wanted it to, or it turned out better than I thought it would. But then, on those projects where I've had a very strong idea about what I wanted, and then I can't achieve that, that's so disheartening. Yeah, yeah. I I mean. It's just tough. Like I, I worked on a project once where it was like for a, a contest or whatever, and I had uh, actors come, and a friend of mine came to help, and we were shooting this like recreation of a scene from Cincinnati Kid, and that was like within the prompt of the contest or whatever, and uh, and yeah, man, like we couldn't even get through it. We couldn't even get through the scene. I mean, and it was kind of small, but it just felt really big. And especially since we had like this clear idea of like, we can actually absolutely do this. And like, there's no problem. Like this is doable for us. And then the fact that we couldn't even shoot it was like, oh, it was just, it was painful. How do you deal with that feeling that coming out of something like that? that you're just like, I completely failed. It's like, you're upset about it, you know? And, and then you want to like wonder why. And then you try to... You know, I think placing blame is the first human thing to do is like to blame someone else for why. But then before you actually, for me at least, before I actually get to blaming someone else, I like to reflect onto myself and see why, um, what I did that made it not work, you know, and like how I approached it that was uh, the wrong approach or whatever, and sort of do it from an internal place. Uh and then you just try to make sure that you don't make those same mistakes again on the next, the next time. Now I know my limits. Like I can't, I'm not so good at X. So when I try to do my next project, I won't do X, you know? Yeah. Hopefully you can see it. I've, I've been in the situation where I thought I was setting myself up for success. And then when I actually did it and I failed and I tried to figure out why I couldn't figure it out. And so then I just end up beating myself up like, well, I'm just not good enough. That's 
why mm. i just i can't do it so yeah best case scenario is you can figure out a reason why and you can set out on the next one to get better at it but i i think i'm kind of in that place now with spirit machine it's like i thought i knew exactly what i was getting with that movie and now that i'm on the other end and i see what i have i'm just like what went wrong yeah why did it not turn out the way i saw it in my head like i I saw it so clearly and i thought that i was getting all those pieces while i was shooting i thought that i had those performances i thought i thought all these things and it just didn't turn out right so maybe i'm just not good enough i i don't know Mm. so that's it's a tough that's a really hard place to be in when you don't know exactly what it is that you need to work on yeah it's yeah i mean i think it it can be really hard to to see like what the problem is you know and the the sad truth is like if you're a director um no matter what like all the things you just listed they're all your fault unfortunately um you know and i mean it's hard because like you have to take that responsibility the responsibility for those things but you basically have to take responsibility for everything as the director because basically it all filters through you and so if the makeup doesn't look right or uh, a performance feels off or um, there's yeah a lens flare you didn't want in the background whatever it is like you know there's a department head for all those different things but in the end it, it all comes back to you you know, you as a director should in some ways have like the producer hat on when you're in pre pro and then deciding who you want around you. Like, don't leave it up to your producer to like pick all the people to surround you with. Like, those are the people you have to work with and have to fulfill what you want. So, yeah, you, you can't blame anybody else at the end of a shoot. It has to all be you. So make sure you choose the people you feel like can pull it off you should have as a director you usually should have say in most of the crew i would set think but i mean i know as you get bigger and bigger and higher higher levels you're going to have less and less say because you're not going to necessarily be a producer on the project you know and if you are there is another producer who you know is taking a chance on you and then they're going to want to put their people in to make sure that you know they feel comfortable exactly and they don't they, they <laughs> yeah. probably don't know you as well as they know their crew and so like you're the wild card i worked with a producer who um really wanted all people he knew and trusted involved and uh any people that he hadn't worked with before like he was very um you know like nervous about and i mean very sweet to them of course and very you know you know happy to work with them but he definitely like he flew in people from new york from florida from everywhere on his own free miles he had mm-hmm. rather than like get local people to to work on it you know um just oh, because wow. he just wanted he wanted all these people that he knew and trusted and and like had a great time with to come out and do this short film and i I think we should be clear that we're not saying a director should hire like every single crew member, but at the very least the heads of the department yeah and and but even if you don't get the opportunity to hire these people, you should at least do your research on them you know and right. know Look where at they're their- look yeah. at their real ask the producer to th- to take a look at their work or like on over my dead body i asked for tests on things just to prove that people could do what i needed them to do because yeah, yeah you don't want to show up on the day of a shoot and be figuring things out for the first time yeah and then but always remember like you know your your position because like you know, you don't want to ask somebody who has more experience than you to do a test for you. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, even if they haven't like done what you Sean want. asking Sean Penn to come in and audition for you. Well, I think best case scenario in dealing with failure is that you know where you failed and how you can do it better next time. So I now do kind of like a document at the end of a shoot that just says like how I can do better next time. And I just bullet point like all the things that I should have done better. So that way in the next one I can do it. And then... I, th- I think we kind of talked about this before is that if you know exactly kind of where your failures are, you can kind of choose one thing at a time for each project to kind of focus on. So if you're not really good at working with actors, then make that your focus until you are really good at working with actors and then move on to the next thing that you're not very good at and just kind of systematically get better at each thing. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the way to overcome it and turn it's, it kind of turns a negative thing into a positive thing. Whereas rather than beating yourself up over what you're not good at, you can say, 
all right, I'm not good at it, but I'm going to get better at it. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of looking at it, like focusing on an area and improving yourself in that area. And then what you're competent moving on. I think that's good. I also think this whole document thing is a good idea. I don't do that. I don't have a little report card for myself after the sh- a shoot and, you know, go over what I did wrong and what I should do better. But that's a really good idea. Cause I think if you can write about it honestly with yourself afterwards and, and file it away, I think, you know, looking back at those documents later could be really useful. And that's great because I was so devastated after I shot the first scene for Spirit Machine Mm. and I'd made one of those documents. Like I was just like bawling my eyes out. Oh my God, like this is the worst thing ever. And and I wrote that document. And when I look back at it now, it seems so silly. Like the things that I could have done better were such small things that I did get really better on on the next one. Like like immediately, just by acknowledging what it was, I got better at it really quickly. And I can't believe that I was so upset over the things that were so small. Yeah. They're just tiny think, little things. It's really easy, easy to get upset about the small things. You know, I, I have that same thing where it's like, you know, you see the small little tiny mistake that you made or like the little thing that shows <laughs> up in, in camera and you're like, oh God, like that's terrible. But then you realize later that um, almost no one is going to see that at all. <laughs> like you're the only right. one who's going to notice it. And you're like, but it's still, it feels really bad at the time. It's kind of the obvious short sights are the ones that hurt the most because they're so obvious. You're like, why didn't I, I'm so dumb. Why didn't I notice that? So how about rejection? So I'm sure that you've gotten these emails from film festivals that say, we're sorry, we don't have a place for you in our film festival. Right. Like how do you feel anything when you get those? Yeah, or you just kind of expect them. Yeah, they uh, the first uh, you know whole bunch hurt a lot. Like for Strange Thing, like I remember, um, I really wanted to get into South by Southwest, and I mean, I know that it's like such a big leap, you know, to get into that film festival. But for some reason, I thought Strange Thing had a good chance. And then when I got my rejection letter from them, it was it really sucked, you know. <laughs> um, I think because when you, when you submit your film to a, a festival, you kind of go into it with hopeful optimism, oh, and yeah. you hold on to that until the day that that letter comes. And yeah. then when it comes, it's like it it makes the reality of not making it in like real. But yeah. up until that point, you're like, there could be, you know, maybe maybe they'll see something. Maybe there's a chance that there's a room for it. Like I don't know. I'm just gonna hold out hope. Yeah, and it was kind of funny with that too because it was like. When I got that, I was like, well, uh, the Austin Film Festival is, is you know, in uh, the fall, and I've submitted to that one, and, well, I can't play at South by Southwest and Austin, so, well, that's okay. Like, I didn't get into South by Southwest. I'm sure I'll get into Austin. That's no big deal. And so I was, like, looking at that one, and that was, like, eight months later, and then... uh what happened was uh, between those two eight months, I got rejected from like 30 other film festivals or 40 other film festivals or something. And so by the time Austin uh, letter was coming, I was already kind of ready for it. I was like, uh, <laughs> I'm, if I didn't get into all these other film festivals that are like way smaller than Austin, there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to get into Austin. So I, I think by that point I had more of a realistic understanding of the level of quality of strange thing. And while it's, it, it's a cool movie and I think I did a good job with it and, and it ended up being something that I'm proud of. Um, it's definitely not the full vision of what I originally had. And it's definitely not at the same level as a lot of the other movies that are getting into these bigger film festivals. I just think I, by the end, I was like sort of aware that, you know, Strange Thing isn't as stellar as it needs to be in order to play these big film festivals. So I sort of, the rejection got easier to handle the more rejection letters I got, you know? Yeah, I think in this particular case, the, probably the best way to not feel totally rejected is by understanding like what, how a film festival works and that it's not a personal thing and it may have nothing to do with your particular movie. They might love your movie. They might have wanted it really bad and have argued behind closed doors about how it should be in the program, but they just don't have a way to program it. Maybe it's too long. Maybe it's not the right subject matter. Right. So I think you have to look at it like sheer numbers. There's just like a ton of people submitting films. It's the reality of film festivals. People are going to get rejected. The, odds are not in your favor so you just have to 
it's kind of like winning the lottery. Hope that you win, but if you don't, don't take it personally. Yeah, that's true. And I think when you realize, like I, I had some experiences talking to people who actually worked at film festivals and talking to festival programmers about their process a little bit more. And then when you hear how it works, it's 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 a le- it, it hurts a lot less basically because yeah. you know you, you know how they like you know have different screeners watch it and and how they select screeners and I know some film festivals it's like they just it's like hey you want to be a screener random person come on in watch some <laughs> movies you know yeah let us know what you think the amount of different people watching these movies and the different types of people is really varied so you you might not you might not get somebody who who you might just get somebody who hates science fiction or hates horror, hates Star Trek. And if, if any of those things were the case with strange thing, then they would absolutely not even finish watching the movie because yeah. mm-hmm. you, you kind of need to like all those things, I think in order to really be into it. Um, once you realize more about how festivals work and you know, what you're up against, I think it, it, it feels a lot better when you get a rejection letter. It's like, Oh, okay. Like I know how many movies are being submitted and I know the quality of the films that are happening right now, you know, and being made. So I don't feel so bad. Yeah. You know, that I think there's kind of the same way that I deal with failures, the, the way that I deal with rejection is, and it's just that you got to keep pushing, you got to keep going towards your ultimate goal. So if you don't make it into a film festival that you really wanted to, like take advantage of the film festival you do make it in. If you don't make it into any film festivals, then take advantage of wherever your film finds success. I think you need to sometimes show your film to a thousand people before you hear one person that says they like it. It's it's easy to, to want to stop after, you know, like 20, 30, 100 no's or whatever, but... I think you just got to get used to all the no's, you know, and just get used to hearing no. And if you're used to hearing no, then you can just bounce back from it easier and easier. So that's kind of why, like, the the film festival rejection thing was good because it was like, you know, 50 no's, basically, <laughs> 60 no's. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wow, so I just got a bunch of no's out of, my, out of the way, you know, if you looking translate for those, that into, yes. like, YouTube hits, though, because, like, I released the Spirit Machine trailer online and I asked all my friends to go watch it and I got a few thousand hits from it but it didn't mm-hmm. it wasn't like a runaway success I didn't it wasn't as big as I hoped it would be but mm-hmm. that's all I did is I only reached out to my friends and family and I got right. that many hits and then hearing your story I think it was last week where you had done that with Strange Thing and then you kept pushing beyond that and you wrote mm-hmm. a bunch of blogs and you probably didn't hear back from a ton of people but the ones that you did hear back from they posted up your movie and you got more hits so yeah. you don't need to get a yes from every Everybody, and it doesn't need to be like a runaway hit like right away you just have to like keep pushing and finding find the people that are willing to support you because that's good that's the only way to do it is if you just if i i am the example of the person who stopped short and then mm. Ulrich is the example of the person who just <laughs> kept going so yeah. you look at like the accounts on our youtube videos and they're completely different and it has nothing to do with of the quality of our film. It just has to do with more like how much work we each put into getting people to see it. And I didn't put up nearly as much work as Ulrich did. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And I think also, like I realized I, I could have pushed way harder and probably gotten a lot more people to see it. But I, I kind of stopped after my first 50 or 100 emails or whatever it was to these different bloggers. And I, I could have just kept on sending 50 or 100 emails every week, you know, to different blogs. And I it would have just kept on going, you know. But, uh, you know, it's it's hard to, to keep on promoting something. But I think that's, if you really want people to see it, it, you just really need, that's what you needed to do. You just need to talk about it and tell everybody, tell the world, you know? One thing I wanted to talk about with this, uh, failure and rejection episode was, uh, our biggest rejections and our biggest failures. Failure is easy because, you know, it's pretty recent. Um, and I think I talked about this in an earlier episode where, I was shooting the first scene of Spirit Machine and feeling really optimistic. I like I knew what I wanted and I was on set just kind of watching everything unfold, all the planning that I had done, how the actors were performing and just feeling like everything was falling short of what I had hoped for. And I pulled the producer out back and just being like, man, we're wasting so much money. This is terrible. This is not what I wanted. This is not anything close to what it should be. We 
totally failed. And then it ended up not being as bad as I thought it was. But yeah, uh, I, I went home that night and I definitely cried. It's like, wow. oh man, I suck. I can't do anything right. And how many days did you shoot the first scene? Just one or was just it? Just one day. It was wow. a one day shoot, but tons of prep. I mean, there was just like, I was trying to be so smart about it. Like I wanted to see everything before we got to set. I wanted there to be no surprises. Yeah. And I felt like I had done that, but there's still things that just I didn't anticipate for. But then what ended up happening in the end though? Um, After struggling with the edit, I finally got to a point where it like clicked to get together in a way where it's like, oh wait, it's actually here. The, the things that I wanted are here. It's like, it's still not perfect, but it's much closer than I thought it was when I was shooting it. Yeah. I mean, I, that was the first thing I watched from you when we, when you first, we got in contact and I thought it was very impressive, you know, and especially period pieces are really hard to do. Right. Because, you know, a lot of times people's, the way they speak just doesn't sound like it should for, you know, being in an older period and they don't look right, but like you nailed the look and the feel and it was scary and the, all the special effects were really cool and well done with all the wind. And I mean, that was the other thing too, is just putting it out and hearing other people's responses gave me more confidence. Cause I think even when I put it out, I wasn't like a hundred percent like, oh, people are going to love this. But then when people started liking it, it's like, oh, okay, well, it's not as bad as I thought it was. How about you? Yeah, okay, so failure rejection first. What should I do? I think I do have, you have a an good example one. of like your biggest rejection. Yeah, so it, it was like my first movie I'd ever directed with my friend in high school. It was one of those things where we put so much time and effort into it, and we put so much care, and we we really thought we were being groundbreaking, and like you know, really like setting a new standard for like what a short film can be about and all these things. And then we played it for like the school at this event. And there's like, it wasn't a ton of people there, but there's probably like maybe a hundred people, you know, in the audience or something, which now looking back is like qu quite a lot, you know, based off of <laughs> like other film festival experiences. But, uh, so we we're in the back of the room and the movie plays and we thought we would get like a big reaction and like there was nothing. <laughs> like nothing like n like no one it was like barely applause basically like just as oh, just man. enough just enough like because they had to and like they had applauded <laughs> right. for other things that we thought were like crappy way way more and we were like what and then i showed it to my mom and i was like mom wait, what, are they crazy like isn't this cool? And she was like, eh, it's okay, honey. Good job. Like <laughs> Your mom sounds awesome. And I was like, oh, God. And then basically, instead of trying to figure out what went wrong or why it didn't work, we just, uh, we we buried it. We were just like this, oh, my God, this is the worst experience ever. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. So, did you, do you feel like you learned nothing from that experience because you didn't really? Evaluate? I don't know. I mean... Yeah, I, I don't really feel like I ever figured out why that didn't work. And I think maybe a lot of it was just, I think we were really worried that it wasn't going to make sense. And um, I think people did get it maybe, but maybe we still weren't clear enough. Like we just, we had a big reveal was written in a letter and we didn't have a very good camera to like actually get great focus on it. So, mm -hmm. And we didn't hold on the letter very long, you know? Um, so I think maybe what we were trying to, like, make get across, like, people just couldn't get it, you know? And I think we just weren't clear enough and we needed to be clear. And we were trying to be, like, you know, sort of, like, let the audience sort of see it for themselves rather than having the actors, like, say it out loud, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was, like, yeah, and, and, and it kind of had, like, um, one of the characters... The twist was that he was, it was like, a, basically the story was like a, a guy getting bullied and like you kind of think that he's like staring at the girlfriend the whole time, but then it turns out that he's in love with the bully. <laughs> so it's like, it was like this, like, you know, like homosexual story, and you know, with this guy who was attracted to the bully and, <laughs> you know, and that was yeah. the big reveal at the end. And then the last shot is the bully like like he's been putting letters into a locker the whole time and yeah. then the bully beats him up and then you we we think it's the girl's locker and then he opens it up and he sees all the letters and then he reads one and it's like i love you 
Craig, like whatever, ever since the moment I saw whatever it is. And then he just drops the letter and it's like the final shot. And I mean, I look back at it now. I'm like, you know, for what, what we had in our age, like I think we did a really good job, but it just didn't come across the audience. And I don't think we actually ever submitted it to any film festivals, but we thought like, oh yeah, we'll just go to the, all the LBGT film festivals and we'll like completely like knock them dead and all this stuff. And then, yeah, we didn't even submit it to film festivals because we were so heartbroken <laughs> by that one screening. Just that one screening. And I think, I think what the takeaway now is that, you know, not every screening is going to be great and not everyone's going to say that your movie's good. And I think that no matter what, your reaction like the reaction you get from people is you should just go with it anyways and just see what happens and i think that was our biggest mistake was not pushing it further you know right you relied on those hundred people to give you a sense of satisfaction and because nobody in that audience got it you convinced yourself that your film wasn't worthy but if you kept pushing you might have found people that did really like it and yeah given you some confidence yeah absolutely so that that's your example of of rejection or your yeah, biggest rejection that's the biggest your, rejection feeling i yeah i think so what's your biggest failure um i think my kickstarter was a pretty big failure uh for in what ways well i mean it doesn't look like a failure because we made it um not look like a failure by like goosing it but i only got like uh I think about $7,000 of the 12,000 that I asked for, mm-hmm. you know, and then I just had my mom put the rest on her credit card and then I, <laughs> then I paid her back later. Um, so the Kickstarter was really a failure because I, I kind of like, so I asked for $12,000, but I really knew I needed more than that. So I was kind of really hoping that it was going to go over the amount, you know, yeah. and I thought I would get all the support from, the different like communities like with the star trek community and like other just the filmmaking community or whatever and uh i think the biggest mistake i made with that like i i definitely learned from that one a lot was just i didn't you know i didn't put enough time into promoting the kickstarter like i didn't understand what it really meant to promote to mm-hmm. promote it i thought i could just put it up there email everyone i knew you know and then be done with it um and it doesn't work that way <laughs> at all yeah, it's a absolutely lot of not. work yeah, yeah. We'll, and, we'll talk about kickstarter in a future episode but yeah, yeah it's, a, it's definitely like a ton of work yeah so i think you know i just i had rushed it i decided to do like I, ha- I thought i had to do the kickstarter like right after i shot the movie or i wouldn't be able to do it later for some reason and mm-hmm. i had all these ideas in my head of like what i had to do and, and it was just <laughs> It was wrong. Like I got married. Like I put the Kickstarter up, and then I went into on my honeymoon to get married. <laughs> so I was like basically gone for the two first two weeks of the Kickstarter. And you know they say the most important time for a Kickstarter is the very beginning and then the very end. You know, and the middle time isn't so so crucial. So I mean, I definitely didn't manage it right at all. Um, but yeah, let's not talk about Kickstarter too much because we'll cover it in a later episode. But that was definitely my my biggest sense of failure, at least with my own creative projects. You know. Yeah. Well, you'll do better next time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know if I. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no way I couldn't. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else to say on the subject? I think there's a lot to say about failure and rejection. I don't. I don't feel like going killing myself or crying right now so i don't think we really talked about it adequately because i think if we really delved delved into rejection and failure i'd be feeling a lot more sensitive and a lot less confident um i think when i wrote down this topic i was uh, probably a little deeper in it at the time right but you know right now i'm not i'm actually in some ways i'm in the exact same boat i was a few weeks ago when i wrote this topic down but i just don't feel feel it as much yeah and that happens like i feel like sometimes the feelings of rejection and failure are so strong at some points and they can feel so overwhelming and then if you just give it time like they just kind of fade away and like especially for me it's like sometimes just taking stock of what i do have rather than what i don't have helps and then um just putting my head down and working on the stuff that's right in front of me and that's good advice i am I don't know. I, I also feel like I feel failure and rejection on a daily basis um, for <laughs> right. for just little periods, you know, where 
like all like yesterday i felt kind of like a failure because i had all these goals and i i achieved about half of them and then there was this film mixer thing that i wanted to go to but then for various reasons i didn't go and i mean i don't know if that's really enough to really make me feel like i failed but i feel like i don't know i feel like i should be doing everything and if i don't do everything then i'm feel like i'm failing in some way and i think that's just short and an internal feeling and I think I need to fight that and just I think the whole setting goals will help me you know setting tasks like when writing not just setting them in my mind but like writing them down and crossing them off I think that'll help you know but I think as a filmmaker and as an artist in general you're gonna feel failure and rejection almost every day and I think what we've been saying like pushing through it is just the only way to, to fight it and like not letting it get to you and uh and like for me at least when i and i feel like i fail or i i've been rejected for some on something or for something i'm trying to do i i like look to other people you know online like either facebook or through other short films or whatever and then you see other people's successes because that's all there is on the internet for the most part is the successes (laughs) and then you even feel worse um so I'm i'm trying like not to do that i'm trying to like you know just stay focused on what i'm trying to do and and not focus on my shortcomings or where I'm going wrong, but just focus on what I'm doing right. And then if I do feel like I failed at something or I, I got or someone re- said no to me, then just say, Hey, I'm gonna keep I'm keep going, I'm keep doing it and just not let that get to me, you know? Yep. Do you uh do you have anything you wanna talk about of what you yeah, I feel like I I feel like I've said it all. Okay. I feel good. You feel good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I really have anything else to add either. Um, I'll save it for the next episode. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. Help other people find us. Leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, also, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We have Twitter handles for the podcast, which is at Podcast. My Twitter handle is at Timothy Plain, and Allrick's is at Allrick B., and then, yeah, we have a Facebook page. So, you know, find us, hit us up with questions or thoughts, comments. Like, I feel so good when I hear from people about this podcast, just to know that somebody's paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. You know, and even if you don't want to leave a, a review on iTunes, if that's too much, just a rating on iTunes would be nice. Like, that only takes a second, you know? Um, yeah. And then just telling people about it too. I think it, like I've, I've gotten, you know, a lot of people saying very nice things to me lately about the podcast and, you know, reaching out and just saying that they listened to an episode and they liked it and, you know, keep it up and everything. But, you know, uh, if you like it, you could also recommend it to someone else, you know, and maybe they'll like it too. Yeah. Spread the word. <laughs> spread the word. All right, Alric. Talk to you soon. All right. See you later, Timothy. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.